You're listening to the podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church, a church in Gloucester, England. Doing wonders, 
you stretched out your hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble, pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are as still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh and his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her, the tambourines and dancing, and Miriam sang to them. Top of page. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. We may God bless uh, the reading and the preaching of his word to us. Well, Easter Day is a day of singing, when we uh, sing in triumph songs and recall the death and resurrection, uh, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead, that he's risen, exalted, and we sing about it, we rejoice in it, we sing, thine the glory, risen, conquering son. It's a day of song, for songs of victory. And this song, this song of Moses, is a song of just that, it's a song of victory. So chapter 14 is the event, the event of the deliverance at the sea. And chapter 15, the song which uh, recalls that event, which commemorates it. It's a great song which then gets uh, taken up and used in the rest of the scriptures. And this is the, the first real song that Israel sang uh, as a nation. So this is their birth as a nation, and this is their song. And then this gives rise to a whole genre, really, of songs, a whole series of songs spin off from this song. Many of the songs, you have the sort of Red Sea crossing songs. They come up, uh, you get these pairs of psalms, so 77, 78, 1881, 105, 106, 135, 136. Uh, are all Red Sea Crossing psalms, and they pick up and develop many of those themes. So this song, as I've been studying it, it's one of those parts of the scriptures, you, you get into it and you think, oh, this is a really important chapter. And look, this, this builds, many things are built off this, not only the psalms, um, but much of the language is used elsewhere. So it comes up in, in Isaiah, we have the languages picked up from here, and prayer of Jeremiah gets picked up from here, and even actually the book of um, Revelation, as, as Michael mentioned this morning, we have the, the Song of Moses. So this song, this mighty act 
of deliverance comes up again and again, which, which makes sense because that mighty rescue effort from Egypt is the, the archetypical rescue of God's people. And it's that pattern then that is the pattern that is the, the pattern which is fulfilled in in the in, in what Christ Christ work on the cross in his death and resurrection. Remember that when Christ on the Mount of Transfiguration was speaking about his um, exodus, which will be fulfilled in Jerusalem, literally, in, in our translation it says departure. And so this, this song is of, of great importance in Exodus. It forms a sort of a hinge point. Um, before this, they've been in Egypt. After this, they're going to be uh, in the wilderness. It's this pivot, really, in, in the book of Exodus. And then becomes a great importance as we go through to the rest of the Bible. So I just want to look at this song, this song of victory, and I want to consider first, who sang it? Second, uh, what's the song about? Third, why did they sing it? And, uh, and then finally, um, how do we sing it? How is this to be brought into the worship of the church? How is it that we can sing this song? How is it fulfilled in Christ? Well, first off, um, easy, easy answers. Uh, who sang it? Well, we're told, aren't we? So this is uh, verse 1. We have Moses and the people of Israel. Literally, Moses and the sons of Israel who sing this song. And then you have the song. So, so there we have Moses and the people. But then as we come to the end, we have this response. Uh, Miriam, who is uh, a prophetess, described as a prophetess, um, and uh, Miriam, and then the, the women sing, and we're given this response, which um, is a re repetition of that part of uh, verse 1, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously, and, and so on. And we're not really sure whether, um, when the women sang in response, whether they sang just, just that bit, and that was a sort of refrain all the way through it, or whether they then sang the, the whole song. But either way, you have the, the men sing and, and the women respond. And part of this, the significance of this is um, Pharaoh, Pharaoh was sort of saying, well, the men can go, but not the women and children. That was one of his things. And then, actually, the Lord said, well, I will drive you out completely. So one of the things we see here is we have this whole, the whole nation has come out here. It's the men and the women. Together, they'd be brought out here. And the other interesting thing is um, that, if you remember right back to the beginning, so, so when Moses is a baby, he comes through the, the waters, and he's in the ark, and he's delivered through the waters. And who is he met by when he's delivered from the waters? Well, he's met by his sister. Presumably Miriam, it might be another sister. But so there seems to be this repeated pattern there. And Moses is brought out, and he's met by his sister, and here again, Moses and the whole people of Israel are brought out, and then they're met again by, by Miriam and by, by the women. But it's, so it's the whole community which really sing this. This is a deliverance for, for all of them, for all the people. This is the whole nation which has been delivered and brought up out of Egypt. Well, that's just saying, well, what are they saying? What's the song about? Um, well, that's not very difficult either, is it? Um, it's been a long day and you need easy answers. It's about this great victory, this great victory, this great triumph 
that God has brought about. The song it breaks into three sort of verses, three stanzas. So uh, one to six, they're singing about the Lord's victory over Pharaoh and his armies. And then seven to eleven, God's victory over all his enemies. Um, still Pharaoh, but just seems to be more general there. And then twelve to sixteen, singing about how the Lord um, has brought them through, um, will bring them through to uh, the, the promised land. So uh, this great victory in the past has huge implications for then their future, for their life moving forwards. And there's a sort of a refrain, there's, at the end of each section, there's the, the phrase, O Lord, is, is repeated, and there's also repeated this speaking of them sinking like a stone, or sinking like lead, or being turned into a stone. So it seems there are these three, uh, three chunks, but in a way, um, it's all a, a similar theme. So as I preach through it, I'm just going to take it in, in one gulp uh, this evening. <clears throat> But the first couple of verses, I think, really make a great summary of the whole thing. Um, we've read the first verse a couple of times, but the second verse is lovely. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is picked up in, um, in Isaiah 12. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God. And I will exalt him. They say, God is my strength. And that is just very obvious as, as you've read the narrative. That uh, God is their strength. It is God who has saved them. They did not have um, many resources. Do you remember they were wandering around? It looked to Pharaoh like they were lost. They were there. And um, they had the, the sea on one side. Pharaoh and his armies were bearing down on the other side. Um, what hope did they have? It was not their military strategy which saved them. They did not form battle lines. It was not their wisdom or strength of arms. God was their strength. This was the point, isn't it? They were utterly weak and they were, were panicking. God is their strength and their salvation. What did they have to do? They just had to stand to one side and see the salvation that God was going to bring. So they don't sing about how great they were and getting to the lake. There's nothing about them, isn't it? It was God is their strength. And this is just a, a great reminder for ourselves in our, in our own lives as individuals, as a church, where we look for help, uh, to our own resources, our own ability. Now, God is our strength. He is our salvation. He is our hope. He is our help. And we don't look to our own resources, whether of wisdom, intelligence, or finances, or whatever resources we we look to the Lord, to his strength, his, um, his deliverance. So, um, God is my strength. He has become my salvation. Here, their salvation has, has come to, a, in many ways, come to a fruition or come to a, a fulfillment. There's obviously a, a long journey ahead of them. But if you consider where they've come from, before this, they were slaves in Egypt. And they, they had uh, promises of deliverance. They had uh, the great promise to Abraham that they would be a, a great nation, that he would take them into the land. They had all the, the promises that they had. Um, 
And they'd had many stories that would have been passed down. They knew the great stories of deliverance, how they perhaps gathered around where they were slaves in Egypt. You know, come on, come on, Dad, tell me the one about um, Abraham and um, how, how that time when he so bravely pretended that his wife was his sister. Tell me that one. I love that. You know, and they would pass his And tell me of how he was rescued and brought out of Egypt with great spoil. I love that one. Like they would know these stories, these would have been passed on. So they had the promises, they had the stories, but they were slaves in Egypt. They were still in the prison camp of Egypt. These things, the promises had not been fulfilled. Uh, the stories, well, that was their, that was their fathers and their, their ancestors had those stories. But what about them? But now they've come to this realization. There's been this fulfillment. God has come through for them. Um, God is my strength and my soul. He has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My Father's God and I will exalt him. Do you notice that? The God who was the God of promise, the God of their fathers, has now become their God. This is my God. Uh, this has become more real in their own lives. And I think this is, this is important uh, to think about this, both as parents and as uh, children. As, as parents, I think we can see here just the importance of teaching, <coughs> uh, the promises of God to our children, and teaching the, the stories of God, whether that's stories in, uh, in the scriptures or also stories of what God has done in your own life, how you were in trouble and prayed and God helped you. Those, those stories, uh, sort of passing on those, those stories. But also for, for, for children, as you, you hear these stories and you hear the promises, as, as, as you grow up, there's a sense you just need to, to take these on and say, well, this is my God. You know, my, it's not just my father's God, my mother's God. This is my God and, he is my, and this is my son. He is, the, the Lord is my strength and my son, not just uh, my mum's strength and her son, but my son. Um, and so I think this is just important to think of this, this, whole, this whole section there's this part of the design of a song is to be passing it on to the next generation so that this event which happened wouldn't be forgotten. But so this event which happened would be commemorated and memorized and sung about and passed on to the generations to come, to the generations who have not experienced these things. Now, how good a job the wilderness generation did at passing on these things and these stories is, is another, another question. I think they didn't do a very good job in some ways. Um, so they have these, past, these stories to uh, pass on, but it's a wonderful song. This generation here have come into the reality of what God has promised. Something else I just want to just pull through this as it speaks of my... Uh, much of this whole song is about God's strength and his power, and his power which is greater than the power of Pharaoh. And one of the ways that that comes out, we may have noticed it in, in a sort of repeated way, is speaking of, speaks of God's right hand. Did you notice that? Many references to God's right hand. So in verse 6, comes up a couple of times, your right hand, glorious in power, your right hand shatters the enemies. Um, and then again, verse 12, you stretched out your right hand 
And then again, in verse 16, speaks of um, the greatness of God's arm. And there are many ways in which God is spoken of. His power is spoken of in, in a sort of anthropomorphic sense. His, his right hand, his arm. And even at, at one point, uh, Pharaoh rises against him and, and God blows at them with his breath and the waters cover over. So, um, but here with this, this right hand, part of what's going on there is, is that in ancient Egyptian um, royal literature, uh, Pharaoh is frequently described as doing things by his uh, right hand or by his outstretched arm. This was the, the great might of Pharaoh and that great state that they had. Here was the mighty Pharaoh in control of everything. Um, so such is, is the vanity of kings of the earth. So, but, but, um, but this is just showing uh, who, who is the one who is in real control. It's not not fair, that has been utterly demonstrated. It is God. It is God's right hand who, um, <clears throat> that is in control. It is God who is um, sovereign over all these things. There is no contest. The Lord, by his right hand and outstretched arm, has picked up Pharaoh and dumped him into the bottom of the sea. There's absolutely no contest. So this victory song is a song against the powers of Pharaoh. It's a, it's, a, it's a way of taunting him or, or ridiculing him or, or something, celebrating that great victory. And actually that, that phrase, the, the arm of the Lord, then gets used. This is one of the ones, this comes up um, 12 times in the book of Isaiah. And it gets personified in, in the book of Isaiah um, to speak of God's, God's servant. So familiar words um, in the beginning of Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And he's speaking there about God's servant. So this phrase, right hand, arm of the Lord, then gets just gets developed in scriptures and ultimately gets um, used to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's great power going forward, going forth. And it gets used um, in, in Jeremiah 32, 17. Jeremiah prays, he's in trouble, he prays up there. Oh Lord God, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power, by your right hand, and by your outstretched arm. So these, these words just get wonderfully used and reused as you go through the scriptures. Um, and so we see God, uh, he stretched out his right hand, says the earth swallowed them. That was verse. 12, and there's, there's something going on here with the earth swallowing them. So if you think back to when Moses was sent before Pharaoh first, and he had, remember he had his staff, which turned into a snake, and the magicians thought, oh, we can do that. And they had their staffs, which turned into snakes. Now the staff was a symbol of power and authority. And then you remember what happened is the... Moses' snake, or it was in the hand of Aaron at this point, wasn't it? Uh, that, the, oh, God, I'm going to have to check that. Um, the, but the, Moses, the, the snake of the Lord, signifying his power and authority, swallowed up the other snakes. And that was sort of symbolic that the Lord, in his power and authority, was going to swallow up um, the power and authority of this great 
so there we see this 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 great enemy is is just completely defeated and is swallowed up um, but we see also that this victory is completely just it is completely fair so uh, Egypt and Pharaoh had um, thrown the firstborn sons into the waters into the Nile and so there's it's it's fitting there's a kind of poetic justice that they meet their end in the waters of judgment. That's, so there's a symmetry that is at work there. And you can even see that um, in the, that they are, um, verses 9 and 10, the enemy is pursuing Israel to death and was going to divide the spoil, and those who are bent on destruction are themselves destroyed. So there's, there's a, this, this poetic justice which um, is also at work here in, in this song. So the Lord here is strong to save his people, and actually the whole of creation is employed in this. It is the Lord who controls the heavens and the earth and the wind and the waves and fights for his people. All these elements of creation are at his disposal. And there's a kind of decreation uh, imagery here. It, it takes us back to the the flood, when the waters of the flood crashed onto the, to the wicked, and yet Noah in the ark was, was drawn through the waters. And there's, a, there's a, a parallel there between, actually earlier on, when Moses is drawn through the water, in, in literally in the, in the ark, and it's the same word that's used for the ark there. So there's some elements here in this passage which then relate back to God's deliverance of, of Noah through the waters, and here God and Israel are brought through the waters and emerge out onto the dry ground. And then that, that imagery which is used at the, at the flood itself is imagery which is um, used from the creation world itself, God bringing the, the dry ground out of the waters and dividing the waters. So that, that sort of creation imagery is used there. So the, the point is that the Lord who has rescued his people is the Lord of the whole of creation. He is the sovereign Lord in control of all these things and he is powerful to bring his people through. <clears throat> and then they're led through. So uh, led through to um, from the, this last section from um, 13 onwards that they are are then led through and, and the, the inhabitants of Edom are dismayed and the, the leaders of the Moab and so on. But the point is, if God can deliver his people out of Egypt and, and defeat Pharaoh, he can defeat any other power which stands against his people. Which then brings us on to, well, why, you know, why sing it? Why did the people of God, why is it this song, why did they have to sing it? And the, the, the point is that the, the people of God, Israel, would face many battles, many difficulties, many kings, think of them going to the land of Canaan, and they needed to know that they, uh, their God was God of battles. They needed to know that their God was all-powerful, all-sovereign. They faced many difficulties ahead of them, and they needed to know that their God was sovereign over all and could defeat any foe which stood against them. They needed to know that. And so the point is, if God can defeat Pharaoh, surely he can defeat the kingdom of 
know it and all these other people, uh, but they all face. And so they sing these songs of victory to remind themselves, um, and thereby that God might remind them who it is that they worship, who it is that they are serving, that he has the power to then bring them through and plant them on the holy mountain, to bring them through to the promised land. And they're reminded there that the, the goal of the Exodus um, is to be planted in the promised land in God's place. Um, and so it's, it's frustrating that when you read, um, you read the book of Exodus, we sort of turn the page from Exodus 15 going to Exodus 16, and, and there are the people, they run out of water, and they start uh, complaining, they start crying out to, to Moses. Because um, they think, well, we're going to die. We're going to die of thirst. Um, and as you read these things, you think, well, hang on. God's just done this mighty work and he led you out of Egypt. How is it that you don't just think, could not this God provide for you in the wilderness? And you're reading this, you're thinking, how stupid they are. Or then when you come into sort of Joshua, the, the book of Judges, there's this wonderful bit in the book of Judges. It says, um, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. Okay, so they've run into a problem here, the men of Judah, because their enemy have got iron chariots. And you're reading this, you're thinking, well, come on, iron chariots, how pathetic. Don't you remember uh, your God is the God who, who defeated all the armies of Egypt, this great totalitarian regime which covered the ancient world, your God defeated them. How pathetic you are worried about these little chariots of art. And you get frustrated with them. And then, of course, you close your Bible and you sort of move into the day. And then you face some troubles of your own. Um, and then you start basically panicking that, oh no, you need to have some financial trouble or you have some difficulty or some trouble comes in church life. And you start to panic just like the people of God panicked. And the, the lesson there is it's easier to read the stories and read the characters of the stories and to know what the characters in the story should do. That's easier than actually being in the story yourself. You know, God drops you into the story um, and then we see how we get on. And, and actually often we grumble, often we complain, often we forget these things. And and therefore, that's why we need to sing these songs, to remind ourselves that God is the sovereign Lord, that if he can defeat uh, the greatest power, surely he can help us with the things that we, uh, we face in our lives. So, um, last thing, how do, we, how do we sing these songs? Or how do we, um, we who stand the other side of the death and resurrection of the Messiah, incorporate these songs into our worship? How do we think about uh, Exodus 15 in the light of the death and resurrection of Christ? Well, Jesus, he is the greater Moses, isn't he? He is the one who leads us on this greater Exodus. Think of uh, Moses, how he went ahead of the people, went through the waters ahead of the people and then led his people through the waters. Um, that is what our Lord Jesus did. He is the greater Moses who went up against a greater tyrant who fought against sin and death and all the powers of hell and won that great decisive victory at the cross. 
uh, and he will then lead his people on that exodus. And he leads us on this exodus journey, uh, well, into the presence of God. We are led by Christ uh, before God. And so Christ is the greater, um, greater Moses. Baptism um, is a, a, a picture of this great deliverance. So, so um, Christ's baptism is a, is a sign of the, that judgment which was to, to fall upon people. So, so Christ uh, went down into the waters as a sign of the, the judgment that he would face, that would fall upon him. And he went through the waters, he faced death and hell, and he rose again and conquered them and came up out of the waters. And so if we are baptised, we're baptised into uh, Christ, we're baptised into his death, all our sin is paid for, it is taken away, it is drowned, and then we are raised with him. So we can, we, we sing this song, in one sense we, we, already, well, we already stand on the far side of the waters of judgment if we are in Christ. For Christ has died and Christ is risen and we will not face those terrible uh, waters of judgment. So these things, it's, a, it's a, really they're fulfilled in the death and resurrection and, and the exaltation of Christ. And we think of just the victory of Christ, how the horse and the rider have been thrown into the sea, um, the, the casting down of Satan. We've seen that in Luke's Gospel, haven't we? When Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like lightning. He, he sees just the, 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 the toppling of Satan from the throne, the toppling of powers um, from their thrones, and principalities and powers being cast down in the, in the heavenly realms and the heavenly places, and then kings of the earth and tyrants of the earth then themselves turning to, uh, turning to Christ and the kings of the earth turning to the Lord Jesus. And so it speaks of this great mighty battle um, that is going on in, in the heavenly realms, this mighty battle, the decisive um, victory having been won by Christ. And yet we, um, we still face trials and difficulties, don't we? We still face troubles and difficulties ahead of us. And so we need to sing these songs of victory and sing these songs of triumph to remind ourselves that Christ has conquered every foe, that the enemy has been cast down. Christ rose from the dead in the middle of history to show us that he has the power over everything. And so we can sing songs of victory and triumph even in a world of darkness, even in a world filled with, with graveyards, we can sing songs of triumph. We can sing Thy be the glory, risen, conquering son, at a funeral, can't we? Even by a grave, we can, we can be surrounded by these things and we can know that the Lord ultimately is victorious. We can say words like, where a death is your victory. Um, we can know that death itself is swallowed up in victory. So these, these words hold great promise for um, for God's ultimate defeat of evil, ultimate defeat of um, every evil power. So the decisive victory has been won, 
Um, and we spill out into a world of darkness, singing these songs of victory and triumph and joy. And we do that on Easter Day um, because Christ is risen. And we look forward to that uh, final defeat of the foe, for that final um, swallowing up of everything that is evil, for that final redemption of the whole of creation. When everything evil and bad will be cast into the depths of the sea, when God will liberate us um, and all his people. And so we, we go out to what we sing, these songs of the Lamb. And actually this, in, in Revelation, these, the song of Moses is, is picked up in Revelation 15, 3 and 4. And this is actually, the, the people singing it here uh, are the saints who have been martyred, who've died, and then they are, they are in heaven and they are singing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. And so really the, the, the comfort for God's people now is we need to know that there is no power which can stand against the progress of the gospel and God's purpose to save the world. We look uh, at the empty cross of Christ. We see where he died to pay for our every sin. We look at the cross where um, the judgment fell, and we, we hear his cry and he said, it is finished, and we can sing, the Lord is my strength and my song, he has become my salvation, but with what greater happiness and joy we will finally sing this, when we are finally with the Lord, on the day when the, the dead are raised and we will be with Christ in the renewed creation, when, when all the promises of God are finally fulfilled and when all evil is finally cast down, on that day we will sing with a, a new song. We will sing, the Lord is my strength and my song. You've been listening to the Sermon Podcast for Gloucester Evangelical Presbyterian Church. You can find us out online at gloucesterpres, that's P-R-E-S dot co. <laughs>